Okay. Now I think we're going. We're good. All right. Might have a little bit of silence at the beginning of the tape, but that's all right. We really came close to wrapping up this matter last week, and I started to assign you some verses to look up on a homework basis. And then I got to thinking that they were really matters that I'd rather go through together. So we're going to look at these items from uh, really verse 76 through 79 and uh, and then go back to the Old Testament prophecies anticipating what, uh, what it was that got Zechariah so excited that uh, this baby had been born and Zechariah understood that promises having been made hundreds and hundreds of years ago were at this point of time beginning to become realized and uh, as such, he was excited about it. He had a doctrinal frame of reference in order to be excited about it. Um, sadly enough, though, the, the vast majority of Israel was not prepared for their Christ. Uh, they were thinking only in worldly terms and political terms about the, the Roman dominion that was over them. And uh, they certainly wanted a political deliverer. And, and there were really no shortages of people we'll see at the height of Christ's popularity that they were very anxious to, to grab him and take him off and make him their king because he could multiply loaves and fishes and he could feed them and heal them. And what a great king. They really had no interest in his message. And uh, the Lord had to rebuke them consistently for ignoring the message and being dazzled by the miracles. So that will come out um, through the through the development of these lessons here in times ahead. All right, Luke 1, 76 through 79. Before we look at these verses, let's take time for silent prayer. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for the privilege and blessing we have this morning to assemble together and receive instruction. We thank you for your hand of blessing upon us day by day, moment by moment, Father, beyond anything we could ask or think. We ask now for concentration upon the truth of your word, and we thank you that by taking in the word of God consistently and dwelling upon it and allowing the word to dwell richly within us and making application of the word when called upon in times of testing, Father, through these processes, our very mind is being transformed, our very being is being renewed, and Father, we are being molded daily into the image of Christ. And these uh, these are just blessings and and works on your part that... Uh, all we can do is observe them as they happen with a sense of wonder and a sense of grace and amazement um, that you would even choose to do so on behalf of such unworthy creatures. But here we are. We thank you for it. We ask for that transforming to, to take place even now. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. This is the point in our um, section on the birth, infancy, and adolescence of Jesus and John the Baptist. It is the uh, fifth of those uh, points of study. We will finish this up here rather quickly this morning and then move on to the, to the sixth section or sixth point in this section where we will turn to Matthew chapter 1 and we will examine the announcement of Jesus' birth to Joseph. Quite a different perspective, of course. We've been dealing mainly on the female side of things as the angel speaks to, well, you know, Zacharias is the father, but we're looking at Elizabeth, we're looking at Mary, we're looking at Mary going to visit with Elizabeth and uh, the issues there. We're going to go to Joseph's side of things in Matthew chapter 1 
and see the approach there from the standpoint of a young man. And we don't know Joseph's age, and we really can't even begin to speculate. You can't even speculate by virtue of the fact that he's no longer living when Christ is 30 to infer that maybe he was quite elderly. We just don't know. Uh, his age, uh, we can guess Mary's age just by virtue of the culture and the circumstances of her just being an engaged virgin. We can guess, you know, 12 to 15 in there somewhere. With Joseph, there's no way to tell. He could have been 12 to 15. He could have been in his 20s, 30s, 40s. No way to know the, uh, Joseph's circumstances and uh, the things involved with, with him in his in his marriage. In any event, we will tackle that here momentarily. For now, let's look at verses 76 and following, in the context of this song, he has been prophesying, filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesying, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. And then in these verses, he's gone to reflect upon the plan of God, the uh, grace plan of God for the ages, particularly as it applies to the nation of Israel. Under the covenant promises he made with Abraham, the covenant promises he then made with David. Those are the two um primary covenants as they relate to the nation of Israel until such time as the new covenant will be ratified and put into effect in the second advent. So for now, we're dealing with the uh, Abrahamic covenant, the, the Davidic covenant. Uh, Zacharias is cycling these through his frame of reference, and he is rejoicing and celebrating. But then he brings it down to the personal level when, in verse 76, he transitions and he says, And you, child... And you, child, see, up till now he's been dealing with the vast scheme of things as God is dealing with the nation of Israel. But now he focuses it down to the individual, to this tiny little baby that he's holding in his hands. And maybe he wasn't tiny, maybe he was a good, solid, hefty ten-pounder. You know, we don't know. I, I think the, that the Lord is very gracious and and. Given Elizabeth's advanced age, he probably was merciful and gave her a, more of a, a dainty child there, perhaps. But in any event, he's holding this baby, and he's gone from a vast scope down to an individual scope. And, and I, I know I've commented upon it many times, but in my mind, that testifies to the omniscience and the glory and the sovereignty and the majesty of God, and that his plan is not only vast, but it's also particular. It's also focused. It's detailed enough to be uh, to be inclusive of me and my life on a day-by-day, moment-by-moment basis. And he's not just dealing with vast realms of humanity and epic periods of time, but he's dealing with individual people at, on a moment-by-moment basis. And that is just staggering in many ways. So he focuses down. He says here, And you, child, direct address to the baptizer, to John, his infant son here will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways. And then it begins to give purpose of what those ways are all about. Specifically, verse 76 is addressing John, but it transitions when we start giving the purpose clauses for preparing his ways. In verses 77 through 79, we start to realize that Although it's an extension of his words to the baptizer, they really are reflective of the ministry of the Christ. And that should be clear as you as you examine it. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways. 
Then verse 77, to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And so where all three, all four verses here, 76 through 79, are specifically spoken to the infant. In reality, the 77 through 79 are reflective of what Christ is going to do and communicate, of course, that in verse 76 that the, the, the baptizer is simply the forerunner. He is there to clear the way. He is there to make the path straight, to introduce Christ. And then what Christ is going to do is described in verses 77 through 79. But the forerunner being very important to, uh, to these things here. Now, in the outline... This is now point D. We've had point one with Zacharias and Elizabeth obeying the Lord's instructions. And then point two, Zacharias becoming the final member of his immediate family to receive the Holy Spirit and sings a prophetic song of praise to the Lord. And under this, we've had an A, a B, and a C, and we now arrive at point D. Zacharias celebrates the purpose and ministry of the forerunner and the Christ. The purpose and ministry of the forerunner and the Christ. And under this we have a one and a two. John the Baptist is the forerunner. And we'll, we'll want to qualify that by virtue of our understanding. We've made comments on this before. Uh, that he is the first advent forerunner, that Elijah himself will be the second advent forerunner. And I think we've spent uh, a significant amount of time on that already to where that uh, we won't have to necessarily repeat ourselves with all that again here this morning. But John the Baptist being the forerunner, the infant that Zacharias is holding and singing the song to, and then Jesus, of course, is the Christ. That sentence may seem ridiculous to you and I, 21 centuries after the fact. We would just want to say, well, of course Jesus is the Christ. That's his name, isn't it? Jesus Christ. <laughs> well, that's coming 21 centuries after the fact, looking back to the past completed work on the cross, to the resurrection, the testimony of the resurrection, and all the rest with a church-age perspective with New Testament doctrine. Putting yourself back into Zacharias' position, they have been anticipating this Christ for centuries, not knowing which of the sons of David was going to be born and arise and be identified as the Christ. And uh, so it is a statement that, given the context of this particular song, is indeed quite appropriate. And, in reality... Keeping these things in our thinking as we proceed through the early book, uh, the early parts of the book of Acts is very important there too, because in the early portions of the book of Acts, you've got a lot of believers that were saved in the Old Testament looking for the coming Christ, looking for the coming Christ. And they come to Jerusalem for Pentecost or they come for different feasts and pilgrimages and so forth, and they were saved looking for the coming Christ, and they hadn't heard yet about the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth and how he went to the cross and how he was uh, uh, the 500 eyewitnesses to his resurrection and, and all the things. And so their gospel message very much, or their good news message very much, was the message of identifying Jesus as the Christ, the one that they had believed in as coming. And so they're saved under the Old Testament economy. But then they, when they are given the factual information regarding the ministry of Jesus Christ, they had to put two and two together to get four. 
See, they had to take their faith in the coming Messiah and the testimony of the Christ who came and put those together to say, oh, wait a minute. The, the hope of the blessed hope of Israel we were waiting for actually did come and that the salvation is in Jesus Christ. So anyway, that we're only going to touch upon it here this morning, but it really uh, bears a constant repetition and repeating, particularly as Mr. Dowd's going through the book of Acts, that time and time again, uh, the disciples or the apostles would be going out to all these uh, countries and finding people that didn't know about Christ. They knew about the, the baptism of John, maybe, or they knew about, the, you know, they had an Old Testament framework, but they had yet to receive the message of the Christ who truly did come. So that becomes an interesting uh, part of, uh, of uh, church history and really dispensational studies, a very unique time right there. All right, let's take the time now this morning, as I said, to, and I don't want to take the whole hour in this, but, you know, unless the Lord slows me down, I, I want to get through this and to the, to the Joseph material. But um, you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways. And this describes his purpose, that he will be the uh, the forerunner to go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Now, this is a direct citation from the Old Testament, so we can go back and look at these verses. I put them in canonical order. Isaiah 40, verse 3, and then Malachi 3, 1, and Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. Uh, I'm tempted to go to Malachi, first of all, because that is really the more direct pertinent passage. But Isaiah preceded Malachi by some 300 years, and... Uh, I think it's significant to look there as well. So Isaiah 40. Join me in Isaiah 40. Isaiah, the great prophet, who of course, the great Christological prophet in many ways, who foretold of the virgin, who foretold of the the wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace, the government shall rest on his shoulders. The, the great uh, Christological prophet that foretold the uh, crucifixion, the crushed uh, uh, sheep, without spot or blemish that went to the cross in Isaiah 53. You can give the whole gospel message in Isaiah, 4, in Isaiah uh, by virtue of, again, our New Testament perspective, able to look back to the past completed action. So in Isaiah 40, it's a message of comfort, which is interesting. By the way... Um, if you break down the 66 books of the Bible, of course, uh, where we have 39 Old Testament books, 27 New Testament books, we have 66. There are 66 chapters to Isaiah, and many have observed the parallel there between 66 book, uh, chapters in Isaiah, 66 books in the canon of Scripture, and, and seeing a pattern that God himself gave to us. It's quite interesting that 39 of those chapters deal with uh, the character of God, judgment, wrath, a lot of those things. But then beginning with chapter 40, we got 27 chapters where we have a lot of comforting messages. And here in chapter 40, it begins indeed with comfort. Oh, comfort, my people, says your God. And it's quite interesting if this is the hinge indeed that launches us into the New Testament in the parallel of the, of the chapters in Isaiah. It's, it's an interesting way to start chapter 40. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received the Lord's hand double for all her sins. In other words, time of judgment has been inflicted and now it is complete. Divine discipline runs its course and it has a finite limit when the purpose is accomplished, the repentance has occurred, the restoration is made possible. And indeed, 
tribulation is divine discipline upon Israel, restoring them and preparing them for the glory of the millennial reign. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. And then you will see in the context of what follows here. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low and let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Significant geographical changes that will occur. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. All right, so just at rough glance, without breaking down or doing any exegesis here, at rough glance, we can identify very quickly that this is a second advent prophecy in its fulfillment. That this is pointing ahead to the time of glory, pointing ahead to the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. We know from Zechariah, um, I'm sorry, the book of, yes, the book of Zechariah and elsewhere, that there are going to be extraordinary geographical changes at, after the battle of Armageddon, at the commencement of the millennial reign. We also know uh, through examining the, the gospel record in the, in the ministry of Christ, that he did not come with power and great glory. He came in humility. He came with, in, in fact, his glory veiled, that he laid aside his privileges. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so when this speaks of glory of the Lord being revealed in verse 5, and all flesh will see it together, this can't be first advent. The, the only occasion where he allowed for that glory to spring forth on the Mount of Transfiguration, he just took three disciples with him in a very private context and was transfigured before them. And for the briefest of moments then, that, that uh, veil was lifted for them to behold that glory. But for the, the most part, the entire first advent incarnation of Jesus Christ, that glory was veiled. So we have this here. Um, a voice says, call out. Then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. That's the key verse to the Lockman Foundation. The uh, New American Standard Bible adopts that as the key verse to their Bible translation. All right, but this is the reference in Isaiah 40, verse 3, to a voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord. Clear the way for the Lord. And then we go over to Malachi. 300 years later, plus the prophet Malachi closes the, New the Old Testament with these promises. And this is what draws the Old Testament to a close. And, and remember, Zacharias doesn't know that there's going to be a New Testament. <laughs> All right. To the perspective of these believers here, Genesis to Malachi is the Bible, the canon of Scripture, the Word of God. And they've sifted through all of their apocrypha and all their false books and all the things like Bell and the Dragon and all these other things that would want to try to add to the Bible. They've sifted through all of that. Ezra the scribe and those that followed went through painstaking work to make certain that the, the books of the Bible were in fact the books of the Bible. And canonicity, of course, is a very important study. And they practiced it in the Old Testament to make sure that Genesis to Malachi was the, was the Bible. That's, of course, our English order. For them, it would be Genesis to uh, Chronicles. All right, because they had a different order in their Hebrew books. In any event, it's the same books that we have in Genesis through Malachi. And as the Old Testament comes to a close here, their last speaking prophet, their last writing prophet was Malachi. 
And he says in chapter 3, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. So, it, again, it's re- it, it references back to Isaiah chapter 40 with someone that's going to clear the way. And in, in this passage, though, he's called a messenger. And he will clear the way before me. It's interesting, too, that even the name Malachi means my messenger. And there's... Um, uh, from Malak, the word we have for messenger or angel in the Hebrew. Uh, and it means my messenger. You could even translate it, Behold, I'm going to send Malachi. And he will clear the way before me. So what an appropriate uh, prophet to deliver this message of my messenger. I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says Jehovah Tzivayoth, the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. All right, you just stop right there. Look at those three verses. You tell me, is that first advent or second advent ministry of the Christ? That's second advent ministry of the Christ. Absolutely. He's coming in judgment. He's coming with authority. He's coming with power. He's coming, and who can endure it? Who can endure it? This is not at all addressing um, the babe in the manger, addressing the gentleness, the coming in humility. Notice also in verse 4, Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. A restoration of the uh, temple ministry in Jerusalem being restored, which will happen in the millennium. We've studied that in the Ezekiel series on why are animal sacrifices once again restored in the millennial temple. In many respects, that bugs us to death because we're church-age saints. And we uh, we love the book of Hebrews and we understand the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ and we understand that the Old Testament economy is now obsolete, ready to disappear. And what's uh, why would we go back to an animal ritual when we have the completed work of Christ on the cross? And so that great disconnect with the millennial sacrifices is quite a bother in uh, many respects. Well, we've got teaching on that in Ezekiel and Different things there that are not only on tape, but in, uh, in uh, printed form. But we see that this is looking ahead to Second Advent. Now, then there's a, I'm drawing near for judgment and the things that happen there in verse 5. Looking down to chapter 4, as the uh, book is drawn to a close. Behold, verse 5 says, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Now this again speaks reference to a forerunner's ministry, uh, specifically citing by name Elijah the prophet. But notice the uh, specific ministry that he has is one of repentance. It's one of changing the track of thinking from where it is to where it needs to be in anticipation of the Christ being revealed. And this is how the Old Testament comes to a close. Or for better sake, this is how the Bible is, com- is completed. They don't know how there's going to be a New Testament later on. 
This is the end of the Bible. This is the last speaking prophet anticipating under the doctrine of imminence that at any day this Christ can appear and his, his herald, his forerunner, will appear to make his paths straight and that forerunner is going to be Elijah. So when we uh, go to the Gospel of John, for example, join me in John chapter 1. They've got a lot of this anticipation And uh, in verse 19, this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? See, he came out of his seclusion and started ministering and started proclaiming this message of repentance. And that may be the, um, the uh, better place to pick this up here because he's, he's coming forth and he's testifying concerning the Christ and uh, Verses 6 and following here. And so they want to go out there and figure out who this guy is. Coming from the wilderness and dressed in these you know, hairy garments and with the, the leather belt around his waist and eating this, uh, this weird diet of locusts and honey and so forth. Just like Elijah did all those centuries ago. So they sent uh, these guys to investigate. Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny. But he confessed, I am not the Christ. That was their first question. Are you the, the Messiah? Are you the, are you the, uh, the promised one? Nope, not of the Davidic line, not of the not born of a virgin. And they asked him, "What then? Are you Elijah?" Remember, that's how the Bible ended with Elijah's going to come. Are you Elijah? And he said, "I am not." Well, then, are you the prophet? Reference back to a, a, a passage that uh, Moses had written on the coming prophet in the book of Deuteronomy. He said, "I am not." Now, we understand now that the prophet is the Christ, and we have no problem identifying the two, but. Until these things were fulfilled, uh, there was considerable debate among the Jewish people. Is, was that promised prophet that Moses spoke of, was that the same as the Messiah? Or were those two different individuals? And there was debate through the, through the years uh, on that very question. We know now, of course, that it, the answer is settled, that the, the prophet Moses spoke of was the Christ. And Peter, in fact, spoke of that in his first sermon in the book of Acts. So this is the uh, this is the question. So then they said to him, "Well, then we give up. Who are you? <laughs> we we got to go back and report, and, we, and all we're getting is a bunch of no's, and we don't have any answers. You know, it's kind of like you you got something wrong with you. And you go to the doctor, and they just they don't have any answers, but they just give you a long list of no's. Well, it's not this, it's not that, it's not the other thing, and we just don't really know what it is. <laughs> and it's frustrating. And you go home thinking, well, that was a waste. Why did I go to the doctor?'" Okay, and these uh, messengers likewise say, you know, we've got to go back to our, you know, the Pharisees and Sadducees and, and to the Sanhedrin. We've got to report back, and all we're getting is a bunch of no's. And uh, who are you? So we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you have to say about yourself? And he said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. So. He references Isaiah 40 in verse 3 and uh, uh, manifests that ministry to these people. All right. No question that John the Baptist is the forerunner. Uh, Jesus is the Christ. Well, what does that mean? What does that mean? What were they looking forward to? You and I know what it means, again, from a after-the-fact hindsight, looking back at it, completed work of Christ on the cross approach. But they were looking forward. They were placing their faith forward. So what were they looking for? What did it mean to be looking for the Christ? And for this, I've got them out of order a little bit, but I think it, 
it, it will help us to understand. So we go to Jeremiah 31:34 of what they were looking for for the Christ. And I put these out of order because it, it helps us to fit in with the uh, order that Zacharias was singing about. And, and that might be helpful too to, to just remind ourselves of what verses 47 through 49 were all about. What Zacharias was all excited about, what he was singing on concerning the, the ministry of the Christ and what the forerunner was going to lead the way for. To give his people the knowledge of salvation. All right, that was the first item beyond anything else. The secular approach might have been looking for, uh, you know, political deliverance. Uh, Zacharias understood that redemption was the, the big item on the agenda by the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us. There's a tremendous title. To shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. All right, those are the verses that uh, we're going to find in the Old Testament foundation for those phrases and those Old Testament citations. All right, starting with Jeremiah 31, 34. Now, in Jeremiah 31... What's the first thing that pops in your mind when you think Jeremiah 31? Anything? Well, if you start working through chapter titles and you start meditating your way through the books of the Bible chapter by chapter, there's only 1,189 chapters in the Bible, so you, you can memorize all 1,189 and work your way through chapter by chapter. But Jeremiah 31 is the New Covenant chapter. In fact, 31.31 is... Uh, the beginning of this context. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. A united nation. I mean, keep in mind, when Jeremiah is writing, the northern kingdom has already been swept away 100 plus odd years before his day. The southern kingdom was, was being surrounded by Babylon and about to be swept away. And yet Jeremiah is pointing ahead to a time when the united nation of Israel back together again, Judah and Israel back together as one covenant nation before the Lord. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. And in other words, Moses. The co my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So, and I'm going to take this side trip because it is vitally important and it probably means I won't get to Joseph this morning, but we can thank the Lord that he's taking us where we need to be. When you review the covenants, and in my mind, the greatest blessing that God gave us in the 20th century was the Schofield Study Bible. I can't think of any other tool that had more impact worldwide than the Schofield Study Notes and one of the greatest blessings that they did was to outline the covenants and keep them straight. All right, you have the Abrahamic covenant. You've got the, um, how am I going to outline this? The Davidic covenant. Two primary ones that we've been focused on mainly. Ones that were addressed in uh, Zechariah's song, for example, and elsewhere. In between, of course, was the Mosaic Covenant, commonly referred to as the Mosaic Law, but it was, strictly speaking, a covenant. 
And then here in Jeremiah, we've got referenced the new covenant. Now, when you break these down, it's quite interesting. Let me change colors here. Let's use blue. The Abrahamic covenant was unconditional. It was based upon the promised language of I will. I will bless you and make your name great. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and so forth. There was no if. There was no conditions on Abraham's part. It was strictly a promise of God made to Abraham and Abraham can't break it if he wants to because he has no conditions to break. If there's no obligations on your part, how do you break it? It is an unconditional covenant based upon I will. It's centered on uh, the items, three, uh, three particular items, if you will recall. They were land, seed, and blessing. Land, seed, and blessing. Now, skipping ahead past Moses for the moment, the Davidic covenant likewise was unconditional. Based upon the language of I will. Telling David what he was going to do with his descendant. I will. And he was going to take the seed of David and exalt him eternally on David's throne. And it really is an, a magnification of the seed portion of the Abrahamic covenant. It expanded upon the seed portion of the Abrahamic covenant. All right. Now Moses in between was really quite interesting because it was, let me put this in red, a conditional covenant all the way. From its very beginning. And it's based upon an if you do this, I will. If you obey me and follow my instructions, I will bless you and prosper you in the land. But if you break my covenant, if you disobey me and don't follow these laws, then I will judge you, discipline you, even smash you out of the land and carry you off to exile. Okay? So it was very much geared on conditions with two if-you statements. They even got the whole nation of Israel to divide up, stand on opposite mountains, and recite the blessings and the cursings. <laughs> the blessings they could expect if they obey, and then the cursings they could expect if they disobey. Each one, by the way, is just a manifestation of how faithful God is. Faithful to bless them, faithful to curse them. Conditional, of course, upon their obedience or disobedience. And so it is conditional. It is conditional. And, by the way, this one really goes to help to expand the land element of the Abrahamic covenant because it stipulated much of the land blessings and the land aspects of the nation of Israel. In fact, uh, showing how part of the judgment would be to remove them out of the land and give the land its rest and the things there involved with the land. Now, the New Covenant comes along, and it really is an amplification of the blessing aspects of the Abrahamic Covenant. So you see, you've got land, seed, and blessing with respect to Abrahamic Covenant and how they are furthermore unfolded through these covenants, land, seed, and blessing, and in many respects, land gets restated here 
because it's superseding Moses, and I'll talk about that here in a moment. It is again unconditional, praise the Lord. Unconditional. Based upon I will. Verse 31 again says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And this is what he's going to do. And it's remarkable. Now when he says, when he contrasts it with the previous covenant, he says, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So which one of these was that? It was Moses. It was this one. This is the one he made when he took them out of the land of Egypt. The new covenant contrasts with the Mosaic. It replaces the Mosaic. It does not alter the Abrahamic or Davidic because those are eternal. I hope we can be clear on this. And it may not be important to you now, but just listen and perhaps down the road it will really start to sink in. It is, it is superseding, replacing, doing away with the Mosaic Covenant. That's why the book of Hebrews says, whatever is growing old and obsolete is ready to disappear. This can't disappear. It's eternal. This can't disappear. It's eternal. They're unconditional and eternal. But this is totally conditional. And it's going to be replaced. It's going to be replaced by this new covenant. Days are coming. And it's not like Mosaic Covenant. My covenant which they broke. My covenant which they broke. Israel can't break either of these. They've got no conditions to, to break. There's nothing they can break. Because they're unconditional based upon what God's going to do. This one, of course, they can break and they broke it repeatedly. Continuously. Throughout their history. And in verse 38... I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it. See, not on tablets of stone. That was here. <laughs> that was Moses coming down with tablets of stone. That was here. Here, this law is getting written on their hearts. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. Remember, the millennial kingdom begins with 100% believers. There's no unbelievers to be found on the face of the earth. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. The greatest thing Zacharias was anxiously looking forward to was that forgiveness of sin. He mentioned that as the, uh, uh, the, the first item in his song. The forerunner was going to go before the Lord to prepare his ways and to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. So we see this played out in the new covenant. and Zacharias had that doctrine in his soul. All right. Secondly, we have another Old Testament foundation in Malachi chapter 4, where we just were with the forerunner. Malachi 4. But for you who fear my name, all right, verse, uh, the chapter begins with verse 1, For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff, and, that day, and the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. 
But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. We have a hymn that contains those words, don't we? The sun shall arise with healing. I have to look that up. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. Isn't that going to be fun? Maybe someday we'll, we'll teach the doctrine of skipping about. You know, Sometime after we do the, the doctrine of the lump. We've got that coming up in 1 Corinthians. We're going to learn how to be a new lump. But after we get done being lumps, we can learn what, what it means to skip about. Skip about like calves. What a happy day that's going to be. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. So, Zacharias is excited about the Son of Righteousness dawning upon his people, excited about the uh, chaff being burned, excited about the uh, Christ reigning in glory. Remember, he also doesn't realize that there's two advents, <laughs> and that there's going to be a minimum of 2,000 years plus between those two advents. Here's where our perspective comes in, where we can look back to first advent, we can look forward to second advent, and we can see clearly, okay, there's two distinct events. In his Bible, Genesis to Malachi, he's just looking ahead to the coming Christ. And part of that is reigning in glory. So it's interesting on that standpoint as well to anticipate that the prophets who were of old made careful search and inquiry seeking to determine the, uh, the time. And, uh, and they couldn't. They couldn't understand the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It, 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 uh, it was a, a, a sore spot for those, for those prophets of old trying to figure out. We got the crucified Messiah. We got the reigning Messiah. How does that work? Because we like this one. <laughs> We're not exactly thrilled with this crushed, uh, crucified, rejected man of sorrows. Oh, don't like that at all. So how does that work? And so it's uh, quite interesting to see these things blended together. All right, Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. Here comes the light shining in the darkness. Isaiah chapter 9. In verse 2. We went through this when we were doing a little bit of geography work dealing with Galilee. There will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. I mean, really, when you read through your Old Testament and you find the land divisions among the twelve tribes, and really most of the action was centered on Judah and Benjamin and Ephraim, you don't find a whole lot of Old Testament Bible stories about the, the great events that transpired in the realm of Zebulun or the realm of Naphtali. They really were not. Later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light, and those who live in a dark land, the light will shine upon them. The promise of the coming light, and Zacharias celebrated that, rejoiced in that, sang about that as uh, he sang his song to his infant in his arms there, addressing, uh, addressing for you, child. In the same context of Isaiah 9 coming in verse 6, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Now, Zacharias could have sung about that, could have sung about government, could have sung about uh, power and the throne of David. 
But what Zechariah was struck by was verse 2 that said a light was going to shine in the darkness. And uh, can't help but think that Zechariah is fairly typical of old men that are spend their lives walking in their light. Old men that love the Word of God and spend their life in the Word of God. And they look around at their generation and the generations that are following them and wonder, why isn't there the same hunger for truth? All right, finally, Psalm 25, verses 8 through 10. The passage that is referenced at the end of Zacharias' song. Psalm 25, verses 8 through 10. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. (laughs) Isn't it great? You know, all the false gods, they were mighty and powerful and they crushed enemies and they, you know, they did other things. But the idea of a God of holiness and goodness and a God who himself was intrinsically righteous that viewed humans as not measuring up to the absolute standard and yet being so um, really humble as to become a teacher, become an instructor and show those creatures where they can walk in righteousness is unique in all of world history. Only the God of Israel had such uh, care for his creatures, for his children as to teach them in paths of righteousness. He leads the humble in justice. He teaches the humble his ways. All of the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth to those who keep his, t- his covenant and his testimonies. And that's why when David can confess, he can confess based upon the character of God. And so he says in verse 11, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. David understood that when he confessed his sin, that the Father was faithful and just to forgive him of his sins, to cleanse him from all unrighteousness, not because David earned it or deserved it, but because the Lord's own name, his own integrity, demanded it. Extraordinary. And I think this is the, uh, this is the nature of uh, why David was called a man after God's own heart, because God, David understood the Lord's integrity and the Lord's absolute standard of righteousness, and he was able to confess with total faith and confidence, knowing that, yeah, I'm a murderer, I'm an adulterer, I've done horrible things, but God is awesome, and he forgives. What a, uh, what a wonderful thing, and David knew that. So, uh, John the Baptist is the forerunner. Jesus is the Christ. No question with regard to any of these items. I find it also interesting, there's a moment of weakness when the baptizer in his older years now, he's not really that old, but he's imprisoned, he's going to be executed, and he starts starts to really wonder, is this a mistake? What's going on? (laughs) Because, again, they're looking, they don't have the the clear division we understand of first advent, second advent, and and the idea of of being executed and not having the the kingdom come in immediately is is, is really a stumbling block, is really a, a, a matter for question. And so he sends messengers to Christ. And um, I'll just flip through here and find it in Matthew. If you know the chapter, please help me out. (laughs) 
chapter 14. No. And so the baptizer starts to doubt and he sends messengers to say, are you the Christ or should we look for another? All right, chapter 11. When Jesus had finished giving instructions to his twelve... Oh, that's right. I knew that. Chapter 10, he sends the disciples out two by two. Chapter 11. When Jesus had finished giving instructions to his twelve disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John, while in prison, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples, and he said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Now he already finished his mission. At the River Jordan, he baptized Christ. He saw the dove descending. He proclaimed the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In reality, his ministry was done. And he knew that. He said, He shall increase and I shall decrease. But now this imprisonment and soon to be his beheading has him asking questions. Am I really serving the Lord? Am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Did I make a mistake? And Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. He goes back to an Old Testament framework, cites the passage, encouraging John, just cycle through the doctrine, go through what you know, review in your mind what you have been taught, what you believe in, refresh in your thinking the promises of God. You have the teaching. It wasn't a, I mean, yes, you can look at it as a rebuke, but it was more of an encouragement and a reminder. He just cites the verses and, t and says, go back to John and, and ask him to answer the question for himself. <laughs> All right? And it's a powerful thing. And, and John, with this uh, passage here in verse 5, is going to be equipped to pass the test, to face his death with dying grace and victory. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. In other words, don't stumble. Stay the course. Finish the fight. Tremendous opportunities there. All right. So having the Old Testament framework is vital. Having the prophetic promises is, is crucial in understanding what is happening here now as the Baptist is born, as the Christ is born, as these things start to unfold. Finally, at the end of chapter 1 in Luke, point 3 John's upbringing is kept unrecorded in privacy and seclusion until he is called to public service. John's upbringing is kept unrecorded in privacy and seclusion until he is called to public service. Luke 1, 80. Luke 1 and verse 80. The child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit, and he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. We do not know that John ever encountered his cousin, that John ever encountered Jesus of Nazareth until that day, that moment at the River Jordan where Christ came down to be baptized. It is not recorded that they ever met prior to that, even though their mothers were, were um, related. Uh, in all likelihood, uh, Elizabeth doesn't live very much longer beyond this, given her advanced age. How old, I mean, you, you have a child when you're in your 60s, 70s, 80s. We don't know how old she is. And, uh, you know, by the time he reaches adult life and starts to prepare for ministry, um, is she going to be around in 30 years, 35 years when the when the Christ uh, appears to be baptized? Not likely. 
living in seclusion, being prepared. It's uh, it's interesting because where was the limelight? Where was the spotlight? It was in Jerusalem. And all of these Pharisees that were growing, sitting at the feet of Gamaliel and growing in their education, in their learning of the law and uh, gaining all of their what we would call today their PhDs and all of their educational certificates and all the rest and, and being identified as a child and being targeted for uh, rabbinical school and being uh, identified very early, being praised very early and, and all the way growing up through school, accumulating to themselves followers, developing these reputations as it were. And now here's the herald. <laughs> being, a tra- uh, being trained and equipped in an entirely different manner. Speaking with an amazing message and accumulating to himself disciples, which is interesting also. I think Mr. Dow has given us good notes on uh, the rabbinical schools, on Shammai and Hillel, the two dominant rabbinical schools, and and how they uh, function and how they operated and so forth. And the Baptist was entirely different. Jesus Christ himself was entirely different. Growing up in Nazareth, maintaining a low profile, living in seclusion, and uh, and the things there, not making his public pronouncement until that day at the Jordan River. And uh, and the Father allowed for that. I think there's a lot of teaching and gleanings we can get out of that, and, and we'll make more comment upon it when we have that public appearance and the commencement of his ministry. Because I think the Father deliberately provided for that seclusion, to, uh, provided for that privacy, allowed for these men to, to grow and to train and to develop and to prepare for ministry and not make a big deal about the uh, the things of their past or, or those particular items. In Christ's case, the thinking in angelic conflict terms, uh, the Father was allowing for the adversary to to not know. You know, did he succeed in uh, Bethlehem? Did he succeed when his agent Herod mur- uh, murdered and massacred all the two-year-old boys and younger? Did he succeed? Well. We know he didn't. We know that that uh, Joseph and Mary were able to flee to Egypt, live there for a time, and return back into Galilee, and and uh, not return to Bethlehem, but return to Galilee, and uh, stay in seclusion, and for thirty plus years, even possibly up to thirty five years, um, living in seclusion there, and the adversary not knowing. <laughs> you know, did he succeed in killing, murdering that Christ until that very day at the Jordan River? And Jesus comes down, the baptizer baptizes him, the Spirit of God descends, the heavens are opened, and the Father's voice says, Behold my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And the devil says, Uh oh. <laughs> it did not succeed 35 years ago. And so what happens immediately after the baptism of the River Jordan? The temptation in the wilderness, the very next item, the very next chapter. So there's a lot to consider in terms of. Uh, the blessings the Father bestowed upon John and upon Jesus, and in their uh, upbringings, in the seclusion they were allowed to uh, they were allowed to maintain. All right, turn over with me now to Matthew chapter one, and we'll get our first glimpse at the announcement of Jesus' birth to Joseph. The announcement of Jesus' birth to Joseph. This is the sixth. Uh, section of the sixth uh, item in the section of our Harmony of the Gospels is titled Birth, Infancy, and Adolescence of Jesus and John the Baptist. And uh, it comes from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. The birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to, to Joseph, 
Before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly, planned to divorce her privately. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. All right, there's a lot in here. I'm going to give you some things to chew on for the next seven days. Verse 18 says they were betrothed. All right, so they're engaged. In verse 19, Joseph is called her husband. All right. In our language, in the English language in 21st century, uh, if I am betrothed, I am not a husband. I'm a fiancé. But here, Joseph is called her husband. 21st century uh, American culture, if I am betrothed and I discover something that is uh, unseemly or I discover something that is uh, a total veto over the upcoming marriage, then I would have an option to simply end the engagement, call off the wedding. Joseph initiates divorce proceedings. In modern times, of course, if I'm engaged and not yet legally married, then I don't need to undertake divorce proceedings. I simply say, forget it not going to happen. Call it off. Because this item's been discovered and, and uh, you know, I'm engaged, but you're pregnant. And I wasn't the one who did that. So, therefore, <laughs> this marriage isn't going to happen. My father is going to contract for me a virgin bride. And since you're pregnant, it's not going to be you. All right. This is what's going through Joseph's mind. Now, now he's going to receive a dream and, and, and be informed of how his bride still is a virgin. But at this point in time, he doesn't know that. All he knows is that he's got a pregnant fiance, or pregnant, I don't want to use the word fiance. He has a pregnant wife. Even though they've not yet ratified or, or consummated the marriage, the, the, the betrothal, the uh, betrothal period is binding which is why divorce proceedings are required and why Joseph undertakes them. I've got a handout for you up front here on the divorce proceedings. And before you leave, make sure you get one and read it over so you'll be up to speed for next week. And, uh, and then we have these things here. Uh, he's called a husband and then he says, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. So he's already a husband, but he has yet to take her as a wife. And Part of that will be explained as you read that handout on the betrothal um, process at that point of Israel's history. And so Joseph woke up and he took Mary as his wife. See, he's already a husband, but he goes ahead and he takes her as his wife. So um, anyway, we will break that down for you next hour or next week, one week from today, if the Lord delays that long. Just giving you some things to think about in the week ahead. And as I say, that handout there is very good. It comes from... Um, 
Barclay, uh, William Barclay in the Daily Study Bible. So if you have a Daily Study Bible at home, then maybe this is uh, repetitive for you. But if you don't have it, it's a good handout for you to read through. All right. Any questions before I close in prayer? like to uh, keep this class a little bit more informal, a little bit more relaxed. The Palestinian Covenant is, um, yes, well, yes and no, in that the Palestinian Covenant comes later in the Mosaic era where it's appended, you might think of it as an appendix, appended to the overall um, Mosaic Covenant. Different authors will break it down in different ways and separate Mosaic Covenant and Palestinian Covenant. Uh, I prefer to identify them and and show that they are different portions of the same overall conditional conditional covenant. Because in the Palestinian covenant is, a, is again, more conditions of if you obey, if you disobey, and the conditions upon the land. Right. Okay, good question. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for your faithfulness in our lives day by day. Father, thank you for this week of, uh, of Scout Camp and for the blessings that's going on out there and for allowing me to be a part of that and the ministry that's out there with uh, with the, the camp chaplain, uh, Bryant. Thank you for the uh, the work of service that's going on there. And, and I want to pray for a young man named TK and for the ministry opportunity he's going to have tonight as a chaplain's aide. And he's going to step up, even in my absence, and, and lead the lead the uh, the service tonight. And so I just pray for that young man and pray that uh, that you would be well pleased that Jesus Christ would be exalted and glorified. And I thank you in Christ's name. Amen.